Greetings, Alpha fans. Uh, welcome to Alpha's Next, the weekend edition. And uh, today's, uh, or tonight's uh, episode is going to step back from the tactical and look at the strategic and focus on what are the lasting economic implications of the virus crisis. So I read The Economist today, which I've kind of fallen out of the habit of doing, but The Economist is an excellent newspaper, as they call it. It's really a magazine format, but you can subscribe to it in just the online version, and that's what I have now, because uh, it's a long read. It tends to pile up, and uh, so I only take it digitally. And there are a couple of uh, things in this week's edition that are really notable, I think. Um, one is there's was a uh, there was a letter to the editor that uh, was very insightful in the sense that it was about a fellow who died recently, apparently, and. The, the Economist does obituaries every week about some notable figure who died. And uh, this particular uh, letter was about an individual who I had not heard of, unfortunately, named uh, Freeman Dyson. And his ideas on the origin of life... Uh, in a humble but not scientific theory, Dyson proposed, and I quote here, that RNA, the information engine of viruses, was at the origin of cells' DNA. With time, the RNA and the cells learned how to collaborate and grew gradually into a harmonious unity. And he was a supporter of the idea that symbiosis or collaboration is among the driving forces behind evolution in cells as much as in societies. Uh, <clears throat> and the letter writer applauds him as being, or lauds him as being, one of the smartest people on the planet. Well, that's an interesting uh, observation from a number of different points of view, or interesting theory. One is that, you know, recently you've been reading a lot about viruses, and bacteria fighting this almost Manichaean war between good and evil over the eons since the beginning of, of life, if if you will, at the at the germ level, the microbial level. And so if our cells are basically collaborations between viruses that form DNA, what you could look at this as is barbaric, uh, unsymbiotic, anarchist viruses versus very well-organized viruses in the form of, like us. So, <clears throat> it's civilization, if you will, versus lack of same. And that's an interesting way to look at this. Then the other article I read today in the... in the uh, Economist, was about 
the long-term implication of the virus crisis. And what we've seen is that that the article's titled Building Up the Pillars of the State, so you can Google that and read it yourself. But, uh, you know, the point of the article basically is that it's going to get harder and harder to argue that there's no magic capability in today's evolved society to create money out of thin air. It it shows that there's some charts. I mean, it's called The Economist, so you're going to have a lot of charts. And what it shows is that in the beginnings of the nation states, back in the 1600s, the percentage of GDP that government spending accounted for was under 5%, I mean, almost negligible. In times of war, that increased. In times of crisis, not a virus crisis, but a crisis of, of war between uh, nation states, it would, dr- it would jump up to 20, but then it would go back down. In World War One, it went up to 60%, which is basically what bankrupted the British Empire. And it went back up there in, in, in World War Two, and now it's at 40%. But Britain is relatively <clears throat> low on that scale because now you've got social spending that accounts for anywhere from 25 to 30% of uh, public or public social spending accounts for anywhere from 20 to 30% of GDP in uh, OECD countries. And tax revenue accounts for just over 20, about 25% of GDP in the U.S., but in uh, Sweden, it, it goes up to 50%. So basically, you know, half of the economy is taxed, and then it's redistributed, and you get about 30 cents on the dollar back, and the other 20% presumably is overhead and defense and things that are not considered to be social spending. So, uh, and they quote a uh, 19th century economist, German economist, Adolf Wagner, talking about uh, why the government demands, uh, or why demands on government grew, And he said, an increasingly complex production process needed more regulation and contractual enforcement. Wealthier people would also demand more public welfare provision, the theory goes, perhaps because they worried less about their own material situation and could turn their attention to others. Uh, He also pointed to what economists call hysteresis in fiscal policy. Governments may intend to boost spending for only a short while, but uh, it's a lot easier to ratchet that up than it is to ratchet it down. So, uh, nothing has helped boost state power as much as crisis, and this is the mother of all crises. So, the bottom line is that Uh, Between the central bank's ability to keep interest rates low and the obvious ability of governments to borrow 
ad infinitum, as it were. Uh, I'm gonna, the likely, the, this is the last paragraph. The likely economic effects of the pandemic reach far beyond the role of the state. Countries could be even less welcoming to immigrants, the better they may believe to reduce the likelihood of infection from foreign arrivals. On the same logic, resistance to the development of dense urban centers could mount. And we're already seeing that with real estate prices going up in less dense areas. Uh, more countries may seek to become self-sufficient in the production of strategic commodities, such as medicines, medical equipment, and even toilet paper, contributing to a further rollback of globalization. But the refined, the redefined role of the state could prove to be the most significant shift. The rules of the game have been moving in that direction for centuries, and another radical change is looming in this crisis. So I think what they're saying is universal basic income, public provision of health care and education, they're all going to be fostered by this. And an interesting point in the article is that government tends to take control of things that don't lend themselves to efficiency gains and, and dis, digi, digital disruption in, in, in today's world. A couple of examples of that are health care and education. There's no particular economy of scale to those things. So, and there's no clear way to automate those things. They're very labor-intensive, and those become public sector functions. So that, uh, you know, when you think about it, to get back to the analogy the virus versus the organism, um, organisms run on different rules than viruses do. You know, a pure free market model assumes that we remain at the lowest level of uh, symbiosis and organization. And uh, there's still a place for the marketplace, obviously. But if you think about it in terms of a more sophisticated organization having more capabilities and different capabilities, uh, the argument for socialism um, and expansion of the role of the state actually comes to make more sense, at least for those things that don't really lend themselves to private sector uh, entrepreneurialism in, in, the, in this day and age. For example, um, Amazon should not be a function of the state. Obviously, it can do very well on its own. And the externality of that is, you know, some people get a lot richer than most people would like to see them get, but who cares? It's still cheaper to do it that way. It's more efficient and effective to do it in the private sector than it is to do it in the public sector. Conversely, healthcare doesn't seem to be quite that way, at least insofar as the provision of healthcare um, on a human level, on the service end of it, on the, on the development of drugs and such and devices, it's arguable that it does work better in the private sector because there's going to be more innovation from people who are motivated to make a fortune. So it's an interesting perspective. Um, we probably need more rules and regulation and uh, publicly financed um, work, if you will, <coughs> services, 
as we grow more sophisticated as a as an organism, as a social organism, uh, than uh, we did when we were all individual actors and all you know hunter killers out there, hunter gatherers. So interesting <clears throat> observation that an idea that formed in my head. So I thought I would share it today rather than taking the time to write it down. And since my audience is small, I can be a little self-indulgent. But from an investment perspective, I think what that means is you can expect continually higher taxes, uh, continually uh, larger expansion of government share of GDP, and continued low interest rates. Because the government has a huge conflict of interest. The higher the debt goes the more important it is for them to keep interest rates down. So, And you're going to have more inflationary pressures due to the onshoring um, and the reverse globalization that's going to happen. So that's about it for today. Uh, we'll think about that. Well, you think about that. And uh, we will talk again soon. This is brought to you by Alpha's Next. Don't steal it, but feel free to share it. And that's all for tonight.